Good morning. Uh, my name is Ryan, and it's my pleasure to open God's Word with you this morning. And we're looking at uh, Mark chapter 8. Um, Todd mentioned a moment ago, we are uh, working our way through the Gospel of Mark this fall. We're actually right in the middle. So if you were to open up the Gospel of Mark to the middle, you would land right about where we are today, and specifically on this question that we've heard asked a couple different times already this morning, Jesus's question to his disciples and really uh, to each one of us, who do you say that I am? Uh, that question resides right at the middle of this gospel. It really is there as a turning point, not only for this entire book, but but ultimately, it stands at the turning point of every human life, how you answer that question. And so uh, we'll read together, or I'll read for us, uh, the Gospel of Mark chapter 8, uh, beginning with verse 22, and we'll read this morning through verse 33. Let's give our attention to God's word. And they came to Bethsaida. And some people brought to him, that is brought to Jesus, a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again and he opened his eyes, and his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, do not even enter the village. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say, Elijah, and others, one of the prophets, and he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, our hearts and our lives are open before you. Indeed, we are open books before you. There's nothing we can hide from you. And so we pray that you would give us the great freedom that we have in the gospel to listen carefully to you, Holy Spirit, that you might reveal wonderful things in this portion of your word. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, I think it's safe to say that we like to keep our options open. This time of year, doing some Christmas shopping perhaps, got a head start this weekend. And one of the things that we look for now, it's almost a requirement in something that we buy is a return policy. Even if we're just buying something for ourselves, we just love the option of giving it back, of saying, you know, 
I didn't want that after all. We like to go out to places where we have lots of options in terms of what we'd like to order. Some of us either even suffer through the, uh, the menu at Cheesecake Factory, which is 450 pages long. We love it. It's like, you know, we just work our way through it. We're, we narrow it down to like three options, and then we ask the waiter or the waitress to come back. We're not, we're not quite there. We're keeping our options open. And of course, this applies to bigger things too. We know as Americans in the last five decades, we've delayed just about every major decision by five or six years on average, whether it's a major, a career, marriage, you name it. We like keeping our options open. We like waiting. We like seeing what's out there, imagining the possibilities. And the assumption behind keeping your options open is simple enough. The assumption is if you keep your options open long enough, you'll be happier in the long run. What if that, what if that assumption wasn't true, actually? Uh, there's been some research in the last number of years as we've continued to keep our options more and more open that suggests that it actually the opposite is true. One researcher, a guy named Dan Gilbert at Harvard, has done research precisely in this area, and he's conducted these experiments where he's asked people to make reversible decisions and then irreversible decisions. And then he's measured their levels of happiness and satisfaction on the other side of those decisions. And consistently, what he's discovered is that human beings end up being happier after they make irreversible decisions rather than reversible decisions. As if to say, you know, there are times keeping your options open is a good thing, and there are times it's actually really a bad idea. It's not even good for you. In this passage, Jesus is saying, when it comes to me and your opinion of me, keeping your options open is a bad idea. Now, that might feel pushy for some of us. That might feel like Jesus is coming on a little strong. That might feel like he's, he's pressuring you into a big decision and deciding what you're going to do with Jesus is a big decision. But if what Peter says is right in this passage and if what Mark says is true in this gospel, then for Jesus to push you toward a decision is not unkindness, it's not being pushy. It's not trying to bully you. It is actually an act of great love. Because if Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God, then it is in your best interest to close your options and confess him as Christ. That's why he asks the question, who do you say? that I am. Now, in order for us to understand that question and, and to understand what's behind that, like the heart behind that question, we need to think about this passage in, in two different ways. First of all, we need to consider how Jesus frames the question for us because that helps fill out what he's really getting at. And then we just need to hear him ask the question again. So Jesus frames the question in the first part of this passage, and then he just asks the question in the second part. Um, you may have been wondering, even while I was reading, while we're, why, why we are including verses 22 and following this, this episode of Jesus once again healing a blind man. Why is this part of this larger section? 
Is it just another miracle, another healing? Uh, is just happened to come before this question? Or is there something about this particular moment that we need to pay attention to? And I think you see where I'm going with this. Yes, absolutely. I mean, think about where this is coming in the gospel. Right before this, if you were with us last week, you know that about halfway through this chapter, um, Jesus is with his disciples and he is, he is asking a battery of questions, one after another after another, all of them probing for faith, asking questions about what they really believe about who Jesus is. And one of the questions they ask or one of the questions Jesus asks in verse 18 of the same chapter, if you have your Bibles open, you can just look a little higher up on the page. Jesus asks his disciples, having eyes, do you not see? Okay, he's not, he's not saying, hey, how many fingers am I holding up? This isn't a physical vision test. This is a spiritual vision, vision test. He is saying, look at me, and what do you see when you see me? That's a faith question. And then right after this, as we're going to look at in just a moment, Jesus is asking the faith question, who do you say that I am? In other words, this, this healing of the blind man is an active parable, if you will. It's meant to, to give us a picture of what it means to be blind and what it means to see. So this man is not here for us to pity, for us to feel sorry for. This man is here for us to completely relate to. Like, brother, I get it. Jesus frames the question this way in order to give us a diagnosis that you know, we may not have walked in here thinking about. And that diagnosis is that without Jesus, we are blind. Without Jesus, we are in the dark. Without Jesus, we are without hope and without God in the world. We didn't sing Amazing Grace this morning, but most of us probably know the lyrics of that hymn by John Newton. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found was blind, but now I see. Where do you think you got that idea? It's from moments like this in the Gospels, in the New Testament, when, when apart from Jesus, we are described as blind. This isn't the way we often think about it. I know we sing that song and we can sing it together from memory, but this isn't often the stark contrast that we live with day to day. There are plenty of people who do in other ways in our culture. I think increasingly in our culture, um, the eyes of faith are not seen as seeing clearly. They're actually seen as a form of blindness. Uh, a number of years ago, um, the philosopher Dan Dennett uh, wrote an op-ed piece in the New York Times. He was reflecting and responding to uh, a a lecture which was given uh, under the title, The Brights. If you remember this, it was probably 10 or 15 years ago. And uh, the new atheism movement claimed this title of being the brights in society. And, and Dennett is responding to this and describing in this op-ed piece what, what the movement meant by someone being a bright. And I'll just quote a little bit of what he said. What is a bright? He writes, a bright is a person with a naturalist as opposed to a supernaturalist worldview. We brights don't believe in ghosts or elves or the Easter bunny or God or life after death. Now, don't confuse the noun with the adjective. I'm a bright is not a boast. 
but a proud avowal of an inquisitive worldview. Now, to be fair, he doesn't in this passage go on to say that everyone else is a dimwit, but that's pretty strongly implied, right? The implication here is if you hold to a supernaturalist worldview, if you believe in God and life after death and ideas like incarnation and virgin births and resurrection and, uh, and many, many of the other things that we confessed even today, then, then, then you're not in the bright camp, you're in the dim camp. You are blind, you're living in the dark, your eyes have not been opened to reality. Now, I want you to feel that so that you can then feel how stark Jesus' own words are because they're just the opposite. What he's saying is, no, 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 it's just the opposite. If, if you don't have the eyes of faith to see who Jesus is and what he came to do and what he accomplished in his life, death, and resurrection and what he will do when he returns to make all things new, you are in the dark. That Jesus came to enlighten to bring light in the darkness. That's the diagnosis that we're given here. This is why, this is why Jesus says, don't keep your options open. If the option is between light and dark, that's Jesus' diagnosis. He also is persistent. You may have noticed um, that this healing is like no other healing in, in the Gospels because it takes Jesus two tries. Now, does it really take him two tries? We can have a discussion about that. I think the answer is no. I think it's an intentional two-try, two-stage healing, but it's the only one. In every other case, Jesus says, go and be well, or touches someone. In, a, in fact, Mark will love to say immediately. He gets to that word immediately a lot to describe how Jesus has power to heal. But here it takes two. You notice the first time he touches the man's eyes and even asks him a question. How's it going? How does that feel? It's like when the doctor says, all right, now do this. How are you doing there? How's that feeling? Or the optometrist goes, this one or that one, this one or that one, this one or that one. You're like, just can you slow down? I don't know. Hold on. Right? Jesus says, this one, how's it feel? And the man says, I love this. The man says, I can see, but only like a little bit. Like you look like a tree right now. That's an improvement. You know, he's an ent. He sees, an, he sees ents in the world. That's better than being completely in the dark. He sees partially, but not fully. But then Jesus touches him again. And now Mark gets to what he really wanted to say. In a sense, he opened his eyes, his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Now we're going to talk in a second why there are two stages to the healing. There's, there's another reason I want to get to in just a moment, but I don't want us to miss Jesus's persistence. Jesus's persistence. He's not satisfied with us looking at him and seeing a tree. He wants us to see him clearly and through him, everything else. And some of you need to hear that because this morning, Jesus looks like a tree. 
You know, there was a time in your life you saw him clearly, but that time has just seems like the distant past. You feel distant from him. Um, you know, you, you read the Bible and you know what the Bible looks like? It looks like words. And you pray, and you know what praying sounds like? It sounds like you're talking to yourself, and sometimes you wonder if that's all that's happening. And you come to church, and everyone else has like HD visions of Jesus, and you're like, I, what is going on? What, what has happened to me? What's wrong with me? Why can't I see Jesus? And what you need to be encouraged by this morning is to know Jesus is persistent. He's committed to see, having you see him clearly. There are others of you who have friends and, 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 and family and coworkers who are in the dark, who are lost, who, who are, are living far from God. And it's discouraging for you. Kids and grandkids and parents and spouses, it's discouraging for you. And you need to hear the same word of encouragement. Jesus is persistent. Persistent. Uh, interesting fact: in the ancient world, healing someone who was bl- born blind was considered the hardest miracle. I don't know what what that scale was, like what the level of difficulty scale looked like, but even in the Jewish mindset, this was the hardest thing to do. In fact, you don't find anybody healed in this way in the Old Testament. You find a lot of miracles in the Old Testament, but not this one. It was really a sign of the Messiah that, this, that the eyes of the blind would be opened. And, and yet uh, Jesus is saying, this is, not, this is not too hard for me. If Jesus can open up the eyes of the blind, he can open up our hearts and open up the hearts of those who are lost and need to see Jesus. Jesus is persistent. Well, that's how Jesus frames the question. Let's get to the question itself. I just want you to notice uh, as we make that transition, there is a change of scenery going on here. In verse 22, we're told they're in Bethsaida, which was a fishing village on the Sea of Galilee, um, and even the home of some of the disciples. And now they move in verse 27. They're either on the outskirts or even arriving in Caesarea Philippi. The name of that city tells you a lot of what this city was about, uh, about 20 years before Jesus and his disciples showed up. Caesar Augustus in Rome gave it to Herod the Great. And Herod the Great, in honor of the emperor, built this, this big temple uh, to worship the emperor, which was common practice in the Roman Empire in that time. And then Herod the Great died, and he gave it to his son, Philip II. And Philip II, as far as I understand, decided, well, let's just make sure people know who I am. And so he added his own name to the city. So Caesarea Philippi, it was a center of Roman power. It was the place the governor lived. It was the place the emperor was worshiped. So don't miss this. This is where Jesus asks the question, who do you say that I am? It is against the backdrop of rivals, right? It's against the backdrop and within earshot and eyesight of the very places where the emperor is worshiped, where the the power of the Roman Empire is demonstrated, the very places in their lives and even in our lives where our allegiance to Jesus is challenged. So I just need you to see that so that when you hear Jesus ask the question, who do you say that I am? It just doesn't feel like a, you know, a private belief kind of conversation. Like, well, what do you think? Like, what's your truth? Tell me about your truth. 
Tell me what you think. And we'll just leave it at that. Now, Jesus is like, we are having a different kind of conversation here. We're having a conversation on the level of empire building, right? On the level of who, who do you owe your allegiance and your heartfelt obedience to? Is it this authority ultimately, or is it me? So when you hear this question, you know, those may not be the competing authorities in your life, you know, emperor worship or, uh, or political military power. They might be. Those things may draw your allegiance uh, in some ultimate way. But actually, we should just be considering all the idol, other idols in our lives, all the other places in our lives that call for us to make ultimate sacrifices. And Jesus is asking this question against the backdrop of that which competes for our hearts. And the question he asks is a personal one. Who do you say I am? In fact, he begins by just kind of polling popular opinion. What do other people say? Well, John the Baptist, Elijah, one of the prophets, these are all important people, but not the most important person. And so Jesus then says, turns the question, what about you? In fact, um, the you in verse 29 is, is right there at the beginning of the question in the original language, which is just a way to emphasize. So it would be like us in English saying, but, but you, who do you say I am? This is a question you have to answer. Uh, you know, we're not going to go around the room and do it out loud, but you know, ultimately, this is a question you have to answer. Your parents can't answer that question for you. Your spouse can't answer that question for you. You have to answer that question. You can't subcontract this out. You can't borrow someone else's. I'll, I'll do what they're doing. You have to answer this question. And by the same token, you know, your college religion professor can't answer this question for you. Um, you know, your favorite blogger or website podcaster can't answer this for you. You know, uh, it, you must answer this question for yourself. And that way it's personal. It's not academic. It can't just be someone else's opinion. Jesus is asking you. Peter gives an answer. Uh, it's, a, it's a good answer. Jesus, uh, Jesus asks in verse 29, who do you say I am? Peter answers, you are the Christ. That is, you are the anointed one. That was the Old Testament language for the Messiah, the one who had been set apart to do the special work of God to rescue God's people. It's a good answer. And in fact, uh, we see that Jesus accepts this answer. He doesn't go, oh, well, no, hold, no, hold. slow down, buddy. You had it right the first time, you know, prophet, teacher, good moral example. No, no, no. No, Jesus says, by moving on, you are correct. And let's explain to you now what it means to be the Messiah. That's why he immediately goes into this in verse 31. He says, he begins to teach him for the first time now. For the first time, he starts explaining to them what it will mean for him to be the Christ. He will suffer he will die, he will rise again. And when Peter hears this, we're told Peter pulls him aside in verse 32 
and rebukes him. You read that correctly. Peter just named Jesus the Messiah and in the next breath begins lecturing Jesus on what the Messiah is supposed to do. He pulls Jesus aside and goes, no, 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 no. Dying, suffering, that that is not what we need right now. Here they are in Caesarea Philippi, one of the centers of Roman power, and he says, Jesus, look around. What we need is regime change. If you haven't noticed, we're an occupied people, we're an oppressed people, uh, we've lost our dignity, we've lost the honor and nobility of David's kingdom. The, the Old Testament says you will restore the throne of David. That's what you need to do. We need to march to Jerusalem, kick the Romans out, get us back into power, establish morality and holiness as the standard. We need to be in the temple, worship, like all the things that we've longed for as Israelites. That's what you need to be doing. You need to fix this place, not just give your life up for some cause. Okay, now let's get back to the acted parable for a second. So a few moments ago, we met the man who could see, but then couldn't see. Well, here we have Peter who can see, but he can't see. Peter can see the Messiah he wants. He can't see the Messiah he needs. He can see the Messiah who can come fix all the people out there who are so messed up in the world that just needs to be set right. But he doesn't understand that the first stop for the Messiah is to fix what's wrong right here. And the only way that can happen is for the Messiah to suffer and die on a cross in our place. Peter could not see that. And so Jesus, as strongly as he is rebuked, rebukes Peter right back as strongly as he possibly can. Get behind me, Satan. That is to say, what you are saying is advice straight from the pit of hell. And you need to get in line because we're going to Jerusalem, but not for the reason you think we are. You see, Peter's answer was correct, but it's only partially correct. He could see, but he could only see in part. He couldn't see in full. He needed to see what he needed the most was what Jesus came to do to suffer, die on a cross in his place. And so as you hear that question, this pressing question from Jesus, who do you say I am? You are the Christ, correct answer. But also we must press a little further and ask, do we understand what that means? It doesn't mean that Jesus is going to be the Messiah we always want just to go fix everybody out there. He is here to save you to go to the cross for you and for me. There's an urgency to this question, right? There's an urgency to it. Jesus isn't asking this question and saying, take your time. He's saying, what is your answer? It's a right now question. It's a today question. It's a before 11 o'clock a.m. on Sunday morning question. Answer the question. What's your answer, Jesus is saying to them and saying to us? And yet at the same time, 
Jesus doesn't want a flippant answer, a shallow answer, one that doesn't fully understand the implications of what it means to believe in Jesus as the Christ. And so it's going to take another half of the gospel for him to show them what that means. And it may take us some more time to figure out exactly what that means. And our plan over the next couple weeks during Advent is to reflect on this question, who do you say I am, by going back in time to the prophet Isaiah. Writing 600 years before Christ, Isaiah wrote these words about the Messiah, and these are probably going to be familiar words to you. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. During Advent, we're going to consider those words as a way of answering this question. This question that each of us must answer. Who do you say Jesus is? One of the reasons you probably know those words is because they were set to music uh, in Handel's Messiah. Some of you have already listened to that this weekend. Some of you will probably go to a concert in which that beautiful piece of music is performed. Some of you will listen to it multiple times between now and Christmas Day. Some of you have never heard of it before, which is too bad. Uh, You probably should go listen to it. But uh, part of that piece of music uh, contains this text from Isaiah chapter 9. I don't know if you know this, but but Handel wrote the Messiah in about 25 days. Amazing. Some people thought he was under a spell or he wasn't well because he was working night and day composing this amazing, beautiful piece of music. He emerged 25 days later exhausted, but it was you know, instantly received with applause and even uh, a standing ovation. But in a private moment with one of his friends, Handel said after uh, completing this work, he said, while I was writing it, I think I did see all of heaven before me and the great God himself. I think I did see all of heaven before me and the great God himself. This Advent, my prayer for us is as we study that text together with this question in our minds, who do we say Jesus is, that we would see in the face of Mary's son, the greater son of David, Jesus the Christ, all of heaven, and the great God himself. Let me pray for us. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this portion of your word. We ask that you would help us as we seek to live in light of it, to have faith, to have eyes to see, that we might do so in a way that brings you glory and honor. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.